Welcome back to the Stronger by Science podcast. My name is Eric Trexler. I am the special temporary primary host of the show. Today, I am joined by by Greg Knuckles. He's currently the permanent guest co-host for the time being. Uh, If you like the show and you'd like to support it, there are many ways you could do that. You could like, rate, or subscribe wherever you get podcasts. You could join our email newsletter by going to strongerbyscience.com slash newsletter. You could check out our team of one-on-one virtual coaches. Uh, We offer coaching through Stronger by Science with a very talented team of experienced coaches. You can learn more at strongerbyscience.com slash coaching. You could use our discount code at bulksupplements.com. The code is SBSPOD. Uh, and that gets you a 5% discount off of your order at bulksupplements.com. You could also check out the Mass Research Review at strongerbyscience.com mass, or you could check out the Macro Factor Diet app that we co-developed, which does offer a free trial. All right, Greg, road to the stage. How are things going? Oh, uh, things are going good. Not too much to report this week. Uh, I was on vacation through through the last part of uh, of last week. Just a, a little trip with uh, my wife's uh, siblings. So I guess my my brothers and sisters in law. Um, yeah, just to just to hang out, catch up, reconnect. Um, so yeah, wasn't uh, wasn't really like focusing on the diet. Just just kind of doing the whole intuitive eating thing. Uh, went well, weight was flat, so, you know, nothing, uh, nothing too exciting happened on either the good end or the bad end. Uh, so yeah, that's, uh, that's my update. Now you mentioned intuitive eating. Do you find that you have improved your ability to kind of eat based on hunger cues compared to the past or is it, where are you at with that? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think so. Um, you know, honestly, the biggest win was that uh like i i don't i don't drink much anymore and i typically when i do drink a fair amount uh my my dietary restraint and dietary choices get much much worse um but yeah no i i managed to uh to to stay under control even when getting pretty lit which was good and on that note here here's some some life advice for anyone listening to this podcast so i i'm 30 now uh, I've been really for probably the last four or five years. Th- this is related to why I don't drink much anymore. Used to be I could have, you know, not like a ton of alcohol, but like three, four, five drinks and not get much of a hangover. Around the time I turned 25, 26, just like two beers. Like I wouldn't, I wouldn't have a hangover, but I'd feel just noticeably worse the next day and in like four or five like i i definitely not feel that that good the next day so i was like you know what it's i still like drinking it's fun but the impact on the next day of my life just isn't worth it anymore but i have found that there's that that there's a hack in the system i i think i know where this is going which is sangria which is incredible. So, uh, Spanish people listening to this, I'm sure this isn't the most traditional approach to sangria, but uh, here's what I do. It's just a bottle of wines, so like one and a half liters of wine or 1.25, just whatever a standard bottle of wine is, uh, about a quart or a liter of some sort of fruit juice that's relatively high in antioxidants. So, like, if it's a red wine, something like a, like a tart cherry juice or like a pomegranate juice uh, is an excellent choice. And then um, just some sort of like 
light uh, liquor to bring the ABV back up. So like a tequila or a vodka or a mezcal or something like that. Uh, And then, you know, toss some fruit in as well for additional flavors, throw some citrus in for aromatics. It's good stuff. Anyway, I don't know exactly why this works. I'm thinking it's just like the antioxidants from the fruit juice, like allowing the poison I'm putting in my body to, to cause less damage than it otherwise would. But man, I can drink a ton of sangria and feel perfectly fine the next day. Um, and I I really put that hypothesis to the test over this past weekend and uh, still woke up feeling like a million bucks. So uh, yeah, I mean, drinking a lot, not getting a hangover, and still making relatively decent food choices. On, on that note, Road to the Stage went excellent this past week. Yeah, you're on a slippery slope right now, uh, and it seems to be a very clear trajectory toward you just becoming a, a frugivore, uh, the people who eat <laughs> exclusively fruit. Uh, I, I see you just kind of weaning the meat out of your meat and fruit diet and just doing uh, fruit and sangria as, as your diet. You know, I, I will say, if I was someone who cared less about science and evidence and and just had more of like a vibes based approach to how i uh yeah like made life choices approach my own diet i i would be someone who would be very susceptible to like frugivore propaganda because like i i want to believe that i could live on a diet exclusively of fruit i don't think i can um like i i think that i would wind up with quite a few nutrient deficiencies uh certainly not enough protein to maintain muscle mass but uh i wish i was slightly more gullible because until i started uh experiencing you know like um what deficiencies would i get i'd probably become um uh what is it when your iron's low? Anemic? Yeah, I'd probably become anemic. I'd probably wind up with like some B12 shit. Like uh maybe like a like a magnesium or like zinc deficiency or something. Um but yeah, like until all of that stuff set in, like I'd have a fun month. Yeah. But yeah, whatever. Fruit's now, great. I miss being gullible. I mean, I miss being extremely gullible. because uh, back in the day I would like I would switch when I was like really young from one pre-workout mm-hmm. to a different brand pre-workout with all the same ingredients. And I would believe that I was trying a completely undiscovered anabolic. Like mm-hmm. this is going to be the most potent muscle building stack that I'm assembling right now. And it was like carnitine in a generic pre-workout. But every I did that like every two months and was like, man, no one knows what kind of gains I'm about to experience. Yeah. And I, I miss that. So I will say, like, there's there's a part of me, and I, I, I think we've talked about this on the podcast before, but there's a part of me that has uh, debated with myself the ethics of honestly discussing the the beneficial effects of supplementation. Because like... You know, most things, even that do work, will have a, a modest effect at best. But then when you look at the research on, like, the, the handful of, like, placebo steroid studies that have been done, like the Maganaris paper from 2001, the Ariel paper from 1974, it seems like expectancy effects can have, like, a, a huge effect on yeah. gains, potentially, and so, like, if if people can convince themselves that, like, they're going to achieve steroid-like benefits 
from, you know, supplements that either are just straight up placebos or like might be somewhat beneficial, but they're not going to have a huge effect. But if people can convince themselves that they will, uh, you know, we we might be robbing gains from people by disabusing them of that notion. And so I, I'm not comfortable fully going down the road of like, ah, ends justify the means. Let, like, let's just start shilling supplements and uh, saying they're the best thing ever. But I'd also be lying if I if I said that that thought has never crossed my mind. Yeah. No, I mean the 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 evidence is strong of uh, like like you said those papers where they convince people like we are putting you on steroids. Now go lift like you're on steroids and they're like hell yeah. <laughs> they get very very strong. Yeah. Uh and they are on placebos, which is pretty yeah. wild. Um all right, so Road to Athens. I've got nothing new to report. I'm having fun, loving exercise, getting out on the lake a few times a week, uh, doing some other stuff. It's pretty fun. Uh, feats of strength. What do you got? Feats of strength. Sure. sure. So um, let's see. So the the couple of big powerlifting meets recently, the USAPL Mega Nationals and uh, and IPF Worlds. Like you know, those happened recently. Uh, most of the strong people in the world did their, their very strong things in the recent past. So there haven't been any, well, there haven't been many like huge powerlifting gym lifts in the past couple, couple of weeks. You know, people, people are just recovering from nationals and worlds. Uh, so I, I dipped into the weightlifting subreddit to see, are there any weightlifters doing crazy stuff these days? And I came across this guy. He's a lifter from Kazakhstan in the 96 kilo class named Artyom Antropov. Uh, and, and what had recently been shared from him was a 300 kilo double back squat. So that's 661 pounds. Um, I go to his Instagram page, though, and from about six months ago, he was hitting some just nutty front squats. Uh, so these will be linked in the show notes, but you will see a 260 kilo front squat for a smooth triple. Uh, so that that's what 573 pounds, I think. Um, and then 281 for again, like a pretty smooth single, and that's uh, what like 620 something like that. Yeah. At, at a at a sub 100 kilo body weight, and he's like 22, right? Yeah, I, I I think he's quite young. Yeah, um, I, I I watched the videos and I was like, how old is he? Because he I think he's twenty two, but I think he looks even younger than twenty two. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I was surprised. Yeah, so very strong, and also I mean, I I just love the aesthetics of a weightlifting squat. Like I just think weightlifting style squats look so cool, and I also just think really heavy front squats are super impressive. So uh, yeah, uh, congrats to him. Check out the videos. Uh, and you know, if you've ever struggled with front squats and you want to watch something that will make you hate your life and feel worthless, uh, yeah, check it out. Yeah. Uh, all right. So for our first, uh, kind of main segment of today's show, we're going to do a stronger by science article discussion. So, uh, and this is actually technically not a stronger by science article. This article was posted at macrofactorapp.com. Uh, we launched that few weeks ago, right? When did we officially launch that? Uh, Time flies. Like a, a month ago or yeah, so. Yeah, a month ago. So this is one of the articles that went up on the newish Macro Factor website. 
And it's about cheat meals. So macrofactorapp.com slash cheat meals. Uh, this is an article that I wrote, uh, obviously exploring uh, cheat meals, um, kind of from an empirical perspective. So not just saying like, oh, I don't like the terminology, but empirically, what does a cheat meal look like out in the real world? How do people talk about cheat meals? How do people psychologically respond to this concept? And, uh, you know, a spoiler alert is that it ain't good. Uh, cheat meals generally not, in my opinion, an advisable strategy nor an advisable term for the strategy. So with that kind of foundation, then I go into some different nutrition strategies that seek to accomplish a lot of what people are trying to do with cheat meals, but with fewer downsides. Uh, and if you're listening along, you might hear some thunder in the background. There's no chance I'm going to try to edit that out. Uh, but you can just, as a listener, appreciate that we are battling the elements, trying to deliver great content here. Uh, so the issues with cheat meals, uh, and I'm not going to make this like an audio book. I wrote this article several weeks ago. I don't have it all like perfectly at the forefront of my memory, but I want to hit the highlights and, and basically just tell you what the article is about, some of the, the main notes. And then if you're interested in digging into the references and resources, I do encourage you to check out the full article. But uh, the issues with cheat meals are numerous, really. Uh, I started out by looking at a study uh, by Pilos and colleagues, and they were looking at um, it was actually a really interesting study because, or Pila and colleagues, they were looking at how frequently people just talk about cheat meals on Instagram using, uh, the hashtag tool. So you can search a hashtag and figure out, okay, how many posts have actually used this hashtag? And they were looking for hashtag cheat meal and they were looking into it and kind of using that as a jumping off point to explore, uh, what do we see from the people who are discussing cheat meals and actually utilizing cheat meals? Um, and there were a number of things that jumped out to them in their analysis. So first of all, uh, people talk about cheat meals a lot on Instagram, which is a place that's really, Instagram is a platform in which the fitness industry is really active. Like there, there are a lot of folks who go to Instagram for fitness. Um, when they searched it, uh, back in, I think, 2017-ish, they got 1.6 million hits for that hashtag. I searched more recently and got 4.2 million. So that alone, like... That, that's a bigger number. It is. It's gone up quite a lot. Um, and it was kind of funny because one of the pieces of um, uh, negative feedback I got for the article was like, cheat meals obviously are dumb. I agree with you that they're dumb, but literally no one talks about cheat meals anymore. That's like talking about something that died in the 80s. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, that's just not, that's empirically false. People still talk about cheat meals all the time and clearly are still using them all the time. Uh, so it, in the evidence-based fitness world, sometimes we have to get out of our little tiny uh, corner of fitness and, and take a broader perspective. But Without question, people are still talking about cheat meals, and well, and, and I mean, even even if the perspective is like, no one no one who knows what they're talking about uh, says or recommends cheat meals anymore. Like, even if that's the perspective, like there are a lot of people who don't know what they're talking about. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. So yeah, like uh, think things that are inadvisable uh, might shock you to learn still still happen every day. They they do indeed. Um, so. 
that's kind of the jumping off point for the article is, is looking into how often are these discussed? What does it look like when someone says, I'm doing a cheat meal on Instagram? Kind of digging into what, what are the characteristics of a cheat meal and what is experienced by the person who is implementing cheat meals. And generally speaking, there are a few main issues with cheat meals as they're commonly discussed and applied. Uh, first of all, in the empirical literature, there are some pretty clear parallels with binge eating. Um, and not just in a superficial way. So superficially, you could look at someone who says, oh, I'm having a cheat meal, check it out. And it's like a 4,000 calorie sp spread of food. So on the surface, you could say, well, that looks like a binge because 4,000 calories is a big meal. But what's more telling is that a fairly common observation is the experience of disinhibition during eating, which is basically a perceived loss of control. This is a key characteristic of what distinguishes a binge eating episode versus having a big ass meal. Uh, when you become disinhibited and feel like you've truly lost control over your eating habits, that's when you start noticing like some of the key signs of a binge eating yeah. Uh, episode. Yeah, like w when you look back and say like, I didn't need and I didn't really want that third plate of food. Why did I get that third plate of food? Right, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Uh, and, and sometimes even while you're doing it, you're like, I know that this is not compatible with what I'm trying to achieve with my diet. And yet I can't seem to get myself to stop, yeah. you know? Uh, so parallels with binge eating, specifically disinhibition, that's a major issue with cheat meals. And I know some people are going to say, well, I have cheat meals. And I don't have, I don't experience disin, disinhibition, and that is great. Uh, and we'll talk a little bit about that later. Uh, another issue with cheat meals is simply incompatibility with an individual's goal hierarchy, and also a misapplication of the fundamentals of operant conditioning. So this is kind of two things wrapped into one, but sometimes people will approach cheat meals and treat them as goal-oriented behaviors. They say, as part of my fitness goal, I will also be introducing cheat meals. And so, for example, they might be uh, pursuing a fat loss goal, and they use cheat meals periodically as part of a strategy. The issue with that, you know, we've talked about goal hierarchies before, where you have subordinate goals that feed into intermediate goals that feed into a superordinate goal. And the problem is, if you have elements within your goal hierarchy that are directly contradictory of one another, you can cause a lot of friction in that goal hierarchy and a lot of interference where you're engaging in behaviors that ultimately are not feeding into higher levels of that hierarchy. And they might really have a demotivating effect, an effect where you kind of pause and say, I am simply confused by my goal striving behaviors right now. Because there's something's something's not right here. There's some incompatibility and some inconsistency. So ideally, you do not want to have major disruptions or contradictions or gaps within a goal hierarchy. Um, and when I talk about operant conditioning, so operant conditioning is an approach to learning or behavior change that utilizes reinforcement. And that reinforcement can be positive, like a reward, or it can be negative, like a punishment. And what you're trying to do with these positive or negative sources of feedback is you're trying to encourage particular behaviors. Um, so I was reading a great textbook by Dr. Edward Serafino, uh, and the whole thing is, is about uh, behavior change, behavior modification, and there's a tremendous amount of text about operant conditioning. And one of the things I find interesting about cheat meals is people will often say, 
listen, I've been dieting my ass off all week and I'm going to reward myself at the end of it. A job well done is rewarded with a cheat meal. And I was like, how would an academic who studies operant conditioning view that approach? And I'm, I'm reading through this textbook and he's got like 12 tips of like, if you're going to do this, here are 12 things to definitely not do. Uh, and I'm pretty sure the very first one was don't use reinforcers that could work against behavioral or outcome goals. For instance, it is not a good idea to use sweets as a reward for meeting sub goals in a diet program to reduce caloric intake. So like if you look into books on operant conditioning, this concept is literally the top example of what not to do. And so a lot of times people who promote cheat meals are like, come on, you should reward yourself with this. Uh, and it's going to be something that kind of keeps you engaged in this goal. And all the evidence that we have empirically would suggest that that is the complete opposite of what you would want to do. That Now, you can use operant conditioning very effectively. You can implement different types of rewards. But if you're doing a fat loss goal or a calorie reduction goal, the reward should not be directly opposite of what you're trying to achieve with the goal. It should be mm -hmm. something that is completely uh, it, it could be completely unrelated. That's a good way to do it, where if I have a successful period of dieting, I'm going to re reward myself with like a self-care day or an extra date night, or you can work something into it that doesn't directly take away from the behavior that uh, allegedly earned that reward, yeah. you know? Um, another major issue with cheat meals is I, that- I also just love the fact that it sounds like it was just like a listicle that showed up in this textbook chapter. What? Oh, the, yeah, the, yeah, uh, the 12, 12, 12 tips. Yeah, <laughs> maybe I, maybe my brain's been rotted by fitness content. And so are, like, are you are you sure this wasn't an article from Dr. Edward Serafino you found on BuzzFeed? I, be, I believe it was a textbook. <laughs> I was holding it. It was several hundred pages long and there were no pictures. So I, I believe it was a textbook. Um, yeah. Uh, another major issue with cheat meals, in my opinion, is that they almost by definition, reinforce rigid cognitive restraint. Um, so we often talk about rigid versus flexible cognitive restraint. Um, and with rigid cognitive restraint, kind of the easiest rule of thumb when you're trying to figure out, am I employing rigid cognitive restraint to my diet? A really easy kind of test for that is like, am I dichotomizing something that probably shouldn't be dichotomized, that shouldn't be overly simplified into two discrete categories, right? So with a cheat meal, it almost insists on a dichotomy between being on the diet versus off the diet. Because if you weren't off the diet, I'm not really certain what cheat would, would signify. Like what is to cheat on a diet while still being on it? That doesn't really make a lot of sense to me just from a terminology perspective. Yeah. Um, so it kind of reinforces this idea that, you know, you know, six days a week you're on the diet and then you have your cheat meal or your cheat day where you go off the diet and then you get back on. But it forces you into this kind of rigid dichotomy. And very frequently you're going to see instances where people say, yeah, rigid restraint kind of worked for me for like six weeks. Uh, but then once I slipped up 1%, I was officially off the diet and I said, screw it. When you're off, you're off, you know, and it kind of gives way into these really larger deviations from the diet and more prolonged lapses 
in that goal striving behavior. So it can be very demotivating and kind of open up this bridge by which you kind of take an off ramp and say, yeah, I had been dieting pretty well, but once I slip up a little bit, I'm officially off diet. And once I'm off, I'm way off. Uh, so rigid cognitive restraint, we've talked about it before. Uh, Helms had a fantastic review paper where they talked about this. Um, and all the empirical literature related to rigid cognitive restraint would suggest it can be used effectively in short-term interventions. So like, you know, you'll, you'll talk to people who do a ketogenic diet, not because it suits their preferences because they heard you're supposed to. So they do a ketogenic diet and they say, oh yeah, I love the keto diet. I'll do it for four or six weeks at a time, lose 10 pounds, immediately regain 10 pounds because I can't sustain it in the long term. And then maybe I'll do it again a few months later, you know, but it, it's this kind of rigid thing where you're on the diet. It's not sustainable. Once you go off, you're way off. Um, so generally speaking, uh, we would prefer not to introduce unnecessary instances of rigid cognitive restraint. Ideally, you'd want to have a more flexible approach in terms of cognitive restraint. And to be clear, there's unfortunately a bit of a misnomer. This is something that comes up a lot. Oh, sorry. I didn't finish that, that argument I was making there. Uh, so rigid cognitive restraint, like I said, it can be used in short-term settings and yeah, people will achieve some goals in the short term, but it's not sustainable in the long term. Once people go off, they go way off. And the empirical evidence would suggest whether you're interested in attaining a goal related to diet or just enjoying the process, flexible cognitive restraint is the way to go. It seems to be positively correlated, not just with a more successful diet and actually attaining the goal you were striving for, but also much better quality of life and much better psychological outcomes while dieting. So for many reasons, we want to encourage flexible cognitive restraint rather than rigid. Uh, what I was getting at, there, there's a bit of a misnomer that flexible dieting means that you just have macro targets, uh, and by definition, now you are using flexible cognitive restraint. Uh, another great point that Hel Helms and his colleagues made in that review paper is you can absolutely approach macro-based dieting with rigid cognitive restraint. So like if you are, if you have a set of macro targets and you set completely unrealistic expectations for how closely you have to hit those targets every single day and you're stressing over it. And every time you miss by a little bit, you say, well, I guess I was not adherent today. So now I'm going to just go off diet and say, screw it. I mean, that is using rigid, rigid cognitive restraint in a paradigm that seems like it'd be more, uh, more suitable for flexible cognitive restraint. So yeah. cognitive restraint is about how much you're, you're just kind of locking yourself into rigid rules that are often dichotomized. So adherent versus non-adherent versus you know, with a more flexible approach, you could say, oh, I was off by 1%. I was off by 3%. I was off by 6%. You know, there's gradation to it. And being a little bit off is not an indicator that you should say, well, screw it. Diet didn't work today. So I'm going to go ahead and keep, you know, going beyond these targets. Mm -hmm. uh, now, another big issue, kind of the main focus of this paper it's going to be a bit difficult to describe here. I, I would definitely encourage people to check out the written article because it goes into this more methodically uh, to try to put all these pieces together. But there's something called the abstinence violation effect and a closely related topic, which is aptly named the what the hell effect. Uh, and so basically, 
Uh, there's a fantastic uh, book that I reference, a, a textbook that I reference from someone who specifically studies. She's an academic who studies uh, the psychology of dieting. And uh, it, it, she, she puts together a really good working model that frames dieting within the context of uh, almost kind of related to addiction literature where there are lapses in a, a particular goal and also kind of more prolonged relapses where someone uh, kind of fully goes off diet and has what you might call motivational collapse. Um, but within the article, I kind of draw out within this paradigm of lapses and relapses, I draw out the psychological ramifications of implementing cheat meals within the context of rigid dietary restraint or rigid cognitive restraint. And I talk about how a small lapse, which might be triggered by a cheat meal, cheat meal that goes just a little bit out of hand, can invite all of these negative psychological processes that very substantially increase the likelihood of collapsed motivation and a full-blown relapse, which they would call the what-the-hell effect, where you mm -hmm. basically say, you know what, I screwed up my diet the last two days. What the hell? This diet just isn't for me. And you are in a full-blown relapse where you have abandoned that goal uh, and the goal-striving behaviors. For, for people who are interested in checking out that textbook, was it Health Psychology by Jane Ogden? Yeah, Jane okay. Ogden. Um, yeah, I, I really enjoy reading her work about the psychological aspects of dieting. It's her focal point in her research, and it shows. Uh, she, she writes about it with a level of expertise that is really difficult to find in the literature, mm -hmm. uh, a very... Uh, a very comprehensive approach that integrates a lot of different models, uh, which is very impressive when you read it. Um, so cheat meals, generally speaking, set us up for a lot of potentially negative psychological outcomes uh, and ultimately psychological outcomes that can directly interfere with our ability to successfully uh, seek and attain a particular goal with our diet. So in the article, I propose two options that I think are better options. One is planned hedonic deviation. Um, and this is uh, pre-planned ahead of time. You are selecting a particular day or potentially a couple days throughout the week. I think it most feasibly on a low calorie diet, you're probably going to select one day a week where you have a pre-planned increase in your calorie target that is purely for convenience. So we're not making it some kind of like, oh, I'm doing a refeed because I need to top off my glycogen. It it purely is, you know, I have a social event uh, or I just want to cut loose and incorporate some extra foods that I would typically not be able to comfortably accommodate with my, my current calorie target. So planned hedonic deviation in the article, I go into detail about how to do it the key differences between a planned hedonic deviation and a cheat meal because there are some pretty important distinctions. Um, but what's really interesting about planned hedonic deviation is there is some empirical research indicating that it enhances uh, self-regulatory ability levels, uh, enhances uh, the retention of motivation across a diet, um, and it, it can facilitate greater uh, self-efficacy while dieting. Generally speaking, within experimental interventions, it's been shown to help maintain self-efficacy and motivation. Uh, and, and while a cheat meal can detract from that, a planned hedonic deviation that is carried out effectively can actually have the opposite effect and have really positive psychological consequences compared to just doing straight dieting with the same uh, weekly calorie budget. So 
In the article, I go into more detail about exactly how to implement that and what the key differences are. But planned hedonic deviation, we've discussed it before on the show. It's a fantastic strategy. Another great strategy that I like is slack with a cost. Another term for that is emergency reserve, but I don't like that term for this because uh, I don't see any need to bring the term emergency into the mix. Uh, I just don't like what that does psychologically. Uh, we're, We're kind of replacing one slightly disadvantageous term with another there. So slack with a cost is great. I also like the idea of a calorie reserve rather than an emergency reserve. Uh, But basically what you're doing with this approach is you're setting an ambitious goal for your calorie target and your rate of weight loss. We're assuming it's a weight loss goal in this context, but it can theoretically be applied in other contexts as well. But what you're doing here is you're setting a a calorie target for, for each day But you have this reserve of calories that is there if you need it. And it's budgeted effectively. So even if you use it, it's not like you're taking huge steps backward. It's like maybe a calorie budget that puts you into a smaller deficit, but still a deficit for the week. Or maybe it just brings you up to maintenance for the week. And you say, okay, no steps backward, but no major steps forward. That's totally fine. But you've got this calorie reserve and you can tap into it as much or as little as you want throughout the week. And you can allocate it throughout the week as much as you wish. So you might get to Wednesday and say, uh, for whatever reason, today I'm using my whole calorie reserve for the week. You use it up and then you get right back to dieting. You know, there's been no, no explicit deviation from the plan. You had this reserve, you used it, no big deal. Um, and, and if you wanted to, you could also kind of allocate it throughout the week or only use part of it. it it's just there as it's it's almost like an emergency fund with finances where it's like, I want to keep that there just in case I need it. And sometimes I will have a financial issue where I need to tap into that and, and use some of it. Uh, but the reason it's called slack with a cost is because I think this is actually I think this actually effectively uses some of those concepts related to operant conditioning to some extent. You know, we talked about how um, you want to make sure that everything is in alignment. You don't want to have like a reward that opposes your goal. I like the fact that Slack has a cost here, which is that you can tap into it and use it. It's there to be used if you need it, but you understand that if you use that, you are slowing your rate of progress toward the goal to some extent. It's not necessarily, you know, grinding your progress to a halt, but there is a cost to using that emergency reserve uh, very liberally and frequently. And so you are, in this case, instead of having this weird incentive where you diet in, 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 as you're seeking a reward of a cheat meal that kind of opposes your goal, you have this reserve here. But you understand, you know, it's there if you need it. But as you use it more, it is to some extent going to slow you down a little bit. So you are incentivized to only use it when you feel like you really need it. Uh, So I think it better aligns that idea of these extra calories that are actually aligned with the incentives that match your goal. Uh, So slack with the cost, again, a really fantastic alternative strategy rather than cheat meals. So I would encourage people to check out the article for an even deeper dive. Um, I, I tried to get into a lot of detail and cover a lot of things that people might have questions about. Um, feedback generally has been pretty positive. Um, there have been some instances of negative feedback. Uh, one has been uh, this garbage ass article is just a big sales pitch. Uh, I mean, so first of all, you don't need to buy 
any product or service to use any of this information. So I, I don't think it really makes sense to call it a sales pitch. Um, but since it's on macrofactorapp.com, I did explain in the article how a user of MacroFactor would incorporate that into how they use the app. Uh, but you can use this without the app. This is, this is just free stuff. Use it if you like. Uh, some other negative feedback. Some people are just like, dude, I really love cheat meals. That's fine. Uh, if, if you really like them, go for it. It, it. I just, it's not my preferred strategy for the reasons that I lay out in the article. Well, and, and I mean, what, one thing I, I noticed is a lot of people, well, I mean, there wasn't a ton of negative feedback, but uh, of the people giving that particular piece of negative feedback, uh, if you ask them a couple of follow-up questions, more often than not, what they were doing was planned hedonic deviation. They just referred to it as cheat meals. So it's like, oh, well, you don't actually disagree then. Like right. you, you just like the cheat meal terminology, which, you know, is fine. We're not here to police language, but, uh, you know, may not be the best terminology because the, the mental associations you have with cheat meal, uh, which, you know, you're conceptualizing it as something you do one, one time per week. It's still under control. It's still in keeping with your goals. Like, you know, if, if that's what you're referring to as a cheat meal, but then you go on social media and say, oh yeah, I have a cheat meal every week. It's awesome. Helps, ke helps keep me on track. You should try cheat meals. You know, maybe like half of the people who read that will also just kind of like implicitly adopt a planned hedonic deviation type strategy. But half of them will be like, Oh yeah, like hell yeah! I'm I'm gonna one day per week. I'm going to go eat whatever the fuck I want in a completely disinhibited way. And this guy who's like pretty jacked and pretty ripped says that that's good. So like, cool. I, I'm gonna go for it. And and when you're dealing with a with a ambiguated term like cheat meal, that is the cost that comes along with preserving that ambiguity. So. Uh, like a, a, one of your points in the article was just that, um, you know, for, for the just for the simple purpose of clear communication, uh, it might behoove you to disambiguate terms a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. And, and people will see like Dwayne the Rock Johnson, like he, he had a few uh, popular posts where he would have like like four pizzas and like a bunch of pancakes lined up. And it's like. I don't know. Maybe you shouldn't plan your strategies based on what works for the rock. I think he's kind of a, a unique case. Uh, also, I'm still annoyed that he didn't respond to any of my emails about co-hosting this show. Um, <laughs> his manager really fumbled the bag on that. That's but, true. Um, but no, th that, that was like the third piece of negative feedback I was going to mention is that like people are like, this is a useless article because I use cheat meals, but actually they're planned hedonic deviation. And like my response to that is like, that's great because you're doing a thing that I think is helpful and useful. Um, but like you said, I think it's odd to call that cheating. If it, if they're, if it's done in a planned way, that's strategic and controlled and in line with your goals. I'm not sure what, what you're cheating on in that uh, particular, uh, application. Uh, and also, um, what you're doing with that cheat meal doesn't seem to be consistent with what the empirical research indicates most people are doing with cheat meals. Mm -hmm. You know, it doesn't have any of those characteristics that lead me to say, hey, the way that people are engaging with these 4 million posts on Instagram doesn't seem to be particularly constructive. 
Uh, so yeah, if if you're listening to this and you say, well, the way you describe plan hedonic deviation is is exactly how I do cheat meals, and the cheat meal terminology doesn't bother me personally. I think that's fantastic, but I would also encourage people to consider, uh, you know, perhaps when you reinforce and perpetuate that language, there might be people for whom that has uh, an unintended negative uh, negative effect. Uh, and I'm not going to, like you said, we're not here to police language or tell you what you can or cannot say. But generally speaking with communication, the goal is to be uh, clear and, and to kind of accurately describe what you're doing. And certainly uh, it seems odd to be going around saying like, ah, I, I have no regard for any unintended harm about what this term might do. I just think there's a lot of people who there, there, it would appear empirically that a lot of people are going to misinterpret that misapply the concept of, of the cheat meal. And ultimately it's not going to be to their direct benefit. So I would encourage people to, uh, I mean, say whatever you want to say, you know, but, but I, I would encourage people to consider what might be the impact on people who are less experienced with dieting who come across my post and might totally misinterpret what I'm talking about here. And in that case, I think planned hedonic deviation, if nothing else, it's uh, a term used so infrequently that you almost have to say, what the hell's that? <laughs> like like a, a person is not going to intuitively uh, associate all sorts of misconceptions with it because I don't think anyone has a pre-existing conception of what planned hedonic deviation is. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, all right, so yeah, if you want to check that out, it is macrofactorapp.com slash cheat meals, and there's a hyphen between the word cheat and meals. Uh, all right, moving on. Greg, you've got a research review. I do, I do. So I have a little research review segment on the effects of taking time off from training. Uh, I... Uh, prepared this segment by accident almost. So a couple weeks ago, uh, Alex Polish from barbin.com slid into my inbox and said, hey, would you mind answering some questions about the effects of taking time off from training? We're doing an article about this. And I said, yeah, sure. I'd be happy to answer these questions. And uh, I put entirely too much thought and time into answering <laughs> the questions to not repurpose it as my own content. Uh, so yeah, the, the Barbend article is out. Uh, it's a good article. Uh, it will be linked in the show notes. Um, but yeah, figured, you know what, may as well talk about this on the podcast as well. And uh, there might be a Stronger by Science article on this topic coming out uh, in, the next, in the next couple of months as well. We'll just see. Uh, but yeah, so this is something that uh, several people have been asking about recently. I, I think just because summer is coming up and so people are going to be going on vacation, they're not going to have reliable gym access. And so they're like, ooh, man, I'm, I'm going on a two-week cruise. Am I going to lose all of my gains? Or, ju or just like, what, what are reasonable outcomes to expect from uh, taking eh, between like a week or up to a month off of training. Like what, what can I really expect? And so uh, I think the best place to start when answering that question is a 2013 meta-analysis by, I'm going to pronounce this Bosquet, but it could be Bouquet. Uh, I don't know if it's French. But anyway, the title of this meta is uh, Effect of Training Cessation on Muscle Performance, a meta-analysis. And... Uh, you can, you can, well, 
If you know how to get access to scientific articles, you can check it out. Uh, it's not open access. I'll I'll leave it at that. Uh, but the the picture uh, painted by this meta analysis is is pretty straightforward. Um, so it was it was interested in muscular performance, not hypertrophy. Uh, but it found that uh, it found that in effect uh, force output, just like maximal muscular strength, is preserved pretty well uh, up to a month uh, of up to post one month of training cessation, uh, or eh, like two to three weeks if you want to be really conservative about it. The the effect size associated with up to twenty eight days of training cessation is a trivial effect size on average. So less than a, a D of about 0.2 or so. Um, and like I said, the, the Bosquit meta wasn't also looking at hypertrophy, but I strongly suspect that it follows a similar pattern where uh, losses in actual contractile tissue are probably minimal up to a month uh, post-training cessation. Uh, just because like, you know, force output is the product of motor skill and just how much contractile tissue you have, your motor skills aren't improving when you're not lifting. And so if you're only experiencing a trivial decrease in force output, I can't imagine you're actually losing that much contractile tissue either. So for, for up to a month, uh, don't really need to go to the gym. You're not going to get that much weaker. You're not going to lose that much muscle. If you perceive that you are, uh, it's probably mostly an illusion. So when you're training consistently, um, you know, more one, you're just getting more blood flow to your muscles because they're, uh, they're more metabolically active from recovering from training Two, muscle glycogen levels are probably elevated, uh, to some extent over what they would be if you weren't training. Uh, and three, you know, just from, uh, like inflammatory stress you're causing with training, your muscles are probably at least a little bit swollen a lot of the time. And so, you know, if you don't go to the gym for a week or two, you very well might look like you've lost a lot of muscle, but that's that's probably just reductions in muscle hydration, um, where as soon as you start lifting again, your muscles will go from looking flat to looking full again, and you'll realize, oh yeah, I, I haven't actually lost any meaningful amount of contractile tissue. And same thing for strength. If you're out of the gym for two weeks, you go back, your first session feels like shit, you haven't actually gotten weaker. Um, you know, you, you probably are just dealing with some rusty motor patterns, and the very next time you do those same exercises again, they'll feel considerably better. So for up to about a month, you don't have to worry about it that much. And then after about uh, a month of training cessation, that's when reductions in force output, power output, and uh, like submaximal strength endurance performance uh, really start dropping off. So, you know, I, I shouldn't need to tell you this, but if you don't lift for six months, you're going to lose a lot of muscle. You'll be a lot weaker. Uh, but I don't think you need science to tell you that. However, there are uh, several important considerations here. So one is age. Very important. So the, the Bosquet meta uh, did, a, did a really nice job of doing sub-analyses to see uh, how training cessation affected like different things differently. So you know, do you see different rates of loss of strength in untrained lifters versus trained lifters after a period of training cessation? Is it different for young versus older adults? Is it different for upper versus lower body? 
And most of these sub-analyses didn't find any, any huge differences, but they did for age. So in studies on people below 65 years old, uh, and, and, you know, you're dichotomizing a continuous variable, it's probably not a hard cutoff at 65, but basically for, for younger folks, um, you lose strength at a slower rate with training cessation. You can probably hold on to strength for a longer period of time uh, of training cessation. For older adults, uh, strength and, and just general muscular performance drops off quite a bit quicker when you stop training. Uh, and just looking at the effect sizes, it's it's about a twofold difference. So it's that's pretty notable. So uh, you know, if we're using one month as kind of um, kind of a touch point here, maybe for older adults, eh, may, maybe you can get away with two weeks out of the gym, but uh, may not be a bad idea to not go longer than that. For younger adults, maybe you can get maybe you can get away with up to six weeks or two months. Uh, but yeah, so reductions in performance will be quite a bit quicker for older adults than younger adults. And I, I know on the surface, uh, some older lifters are going to hear that as bad news. But I also think it's important to acknowledge like two weeks is probably a lot longer than most people expect when they're having this conversation. Oh, yeah. Like I, I'll get questions from people who are like, hey, I'm going to be out of the gym for five days. How screwed am I? And I'm like, not lit literally none at all. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, another factor to potentially consider is what your training leading up to your time off looks like. So one thing that I'm asked with some regularity is like, hey, I'm going on vacation. I'm going to be gone for a week. Um, what if I do an intentional uh, overload block for the week or two weeks leading up to vacation? Will that allow me to to basically use my time off more productively for recovering and, and maybe come back stronger and bigger than I was when I left instead of uh, experiencing trivial reductions in muscle and strength. And there's some evidence that that could be the case. So there was a study by uh, Bjornsson and colleagues, which will also be linked in the show notes, uh, that did uh, observe uh, delayed uh, supercompensation of both uh, strength and hypertrophy. Um, so like they, they were taking muscle biopsies for up to 10 days after the final training session, and they were looking at changes in quad strength for up to 20 days after the final training session. And they found that uh, the, the lifters were actually stronger 20 days after their final training session than they were like three days after their final training session. And they didn't take a biopsy 20 days post, but they took a biopsy 10 days post and uh, muscle fiber cross-sectional area was actually larger at 10 days after the final training session than three days after the final training session. So this study found that in principle, supercompensation is possible, but it's also worth noting that the, that the training sessions uh, leading up to it were pretty nutty. So uh, the subjects in that study were just doing quad training, and uh, it involved, I believe, five days straight of like four sets to failure every day. And then for the last two days, it was two a days. So basically, like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, you come in, you do four sets of quad training to failure uh, all three of those days. And then Thursday, Friday, you come in in the morning, do four sets to failure, come in in the evening and do four sets to failure. So that's that's a really high volume of training for a single muscle group. Uh, where does that, you know, wh where where is the line? So like, you know, that's clearly past the line where you can uh, see some super compensation. 
but I imagine no one is going to keep up that training schedule for every muscle of their body for a week straight leading up to a vacation. So I don't know if this is a feasible strategy to, to attempt to employ. And even if it was feasible, I don't know how advisable it is. Um, just because it, it will probably entail a pretty huge elevation in total training volume over a sh pretty short period of time, which may be associated with increased injury risk. So at least in theory, the the concept of attempting to to overload to get some super compensation uh, with a week off, there is some amount of empirical evidence backing it up, but I still don't know how advisable it is. And like I said, if you're just taking a week or two off, you're not you're not really leaving too much on the table to begin with. So I personally wouldn't worry about it. But you know, if you're if you're trying to dot all of your T's and cross all of your I's, and you're really concerned man, I really don't want to lose any muscle or strength uh, with a one-week vacation. You could try, like, really, really going hard in the week before that vacation. But again, I wouldn't necessarily recommend it. Yeah, I, I used to, like, kind of placebo myself with, with that approach yeah. in, in the sense that, like, I'd be like, you know what? I'm going to crank into that higher gear this week in training. Like, I, I wouldn't do any kind of extreme, like, doubling or tripling of my training volume or anything crazy like that but i would just try to you know maybe give it a little bit of you know an extra set here or there you know pushing the intensity a little higher here and there but but yeah i, I doubt it really did anything physiologically but it, it sure made me feel better yeah i uh <laughs> i had got probably one of the three hardest deadlift workouts of my life uh the day before an international flight good because smart you know, I, I was like, I'm leaving the country. Uh, I'm, you know, it was it was two days of travel, and then in in the foreign country, I didn't know if I'd have gym access. So I was like, yeah, I'm I'm really gonna go hard on this deadlift session and just hope that carries me through a week without lifting. Would not recommend that. Like, dude, yeah. I like I I didn't hurt myself, but my my spinal erectors between the deadlift workout and just the the shit ass ergonomics of plane seats. Like I was experiencing DOMS in in my lumbar erectors for like eight days. Yeah, it sucks that they didn't uh, consult with any human beings when they designed every plane chair. Uh, yeah, it would have been cool to have somebody take a, a seat on one. Yeah, wouldn't uh, wouldn't be the worst idea. So yeah, so so two two considerations: one, age; two, what sort of training you were doing leading up to the time you take off, and then three, and this is the most important by by far is what the details of that time off look like. So uh, going back to something I mentioned before, age, continuous variable, eh, maybe shouldn't dichotomize it. Lifting, not lifting. Sounds like a continuous variable, or sounds like a dichotomous variable. It's not a perfectly dichotomous variable. Uh, it's, still, it's still a continuous thing. There are different gradations of not lifting. So uh, the, the Bosquet meta was looking at studies where, you know, it's essentially people are going about their day-to-day -day lives and then they lift weights for a while and then they just go back to their day-to-day -day lives. So it's, it's like kind of normal training cessation. Uh, nothing too wild happening. They just go from lifting to not lifting, but still living generally normal lives. And I think that's what most people have in mind when they talk about not lifting. However, like I said, there is still a continuum. So on one extreme side, not lifting could involve complete immobilization or bed rest. So 
you know, you're, you're not doing arm training anymore because you broke your arm and it's in a cast or, you know, you're, you're on bed rest. So that is one extreme of the not lifting continuum. The other extreme is still lifting a little bit, <laughs> um, but, you know, not nearly as much as you were before. And so uh, the, the different sides of that continuum can have very, very different effects on what you can expect during a period of training cessation. So uh, if you just, like if, if you're on bed rest or you're in a cast or like a, a limb or joint is completely immobilized, you can and should expect like a truly precipitous losses in strength and muscle mass. So uh, this will also be linked in the show notes. A uh, systematic review by Campbell and colleagues, effective immobilization on neuromuscular function in vivo in humans, a systematic review. Uh, and, and this was a really good review paper. There were a lot of interesting neuromuscular outcomes worth looking at. So things like uh, like twitch force, uh, uh, like relaxation rates, all, all sorts of stuff. Uh, but for our purposes, just kind of like the gross outcomes, like how is muscle force doing? How is uh, muscle size doing? It, it seems like with complete, complete joint immobilization, you can expect to lose up to half a percent of your muscle mass in that limb per day. And you can expect to lose uh, up to 1% of strength in that limb per day. So if you're in a cast for a month, you know, uh, you're, like if, if your arm's in a cast, when, when you get out, like your biceps might be 15% stronger and 30% weaker, which is way, way larger reductions than you would expect just going from like lifting to going about your normal day-to-day -day life. But then on the complete opposite side of the spectrum, you know, you're not going to the gym anymore, but you're still doing some sort of resistance training. Uh, you can maintain basically all of your gains for a very, very long period of time. So there, there have been quite a few studies on this. One of them will be linked in the show notes. It's by Bickle and colleagues from 2011, Exercise Dosing to Retain Resistance Training Adaptations in Young and Older Adults. And so in this training, basically they had uh, younger adults, so people from 20 to 35 years old, and older adults, people from 60 to 75 years old, uh, train for 16 weeks, so train for four months, and then uh, have a period of reduced training volume for eight months. And so during that eight-month eight period, they reduced their training volume by either two-thirds or eight-ninths. And what they found is, and, and so, you know, we're talking about like a 70% reduction in volume or like a 90% reduction in volume. And they found that for the older, the older adults, they could reduce their training volume by two-thirds and still maintain muscle and strength for eight months. So that's, that's a, a large reduction but still doing about a third of what you were previously and, and maintaining virtually everything. For the younger adults, that, that eight-ninth reduction, doing just one-ninth of the training volume they were previously, was sufficient to maintain or even slightly increase strength and muscularity over eight months. So, you know, if, if you're taking... If you're taking a month out of the gym, like you're you're going on the vacation of your dreams, or just you're burned out, and uh, maybe your gym doesn't have air conditioning, and you live in the South, and you're like, you know what? Fuck that. I'm not going to be in that warehouse gym in the month of July in the state of Alabama. That's bullshit. I'm not doing it. Uh, that's totally fine. You can, like, 
just doing a little resistance training. We're talking like maybe three or four sets of like push-ups, pull-ups, uh, uh, body weight split squats per week. You will probably lose a little muscle, lose a little strength, but you're going to maintain virtually all of your gains for a long, long period of time just by doing a little bit of something. So, uh, yeah, that's that's what I have to say on the topic. In general, up to a month off, probably fine. Uh, if you do just a little bit of training, you can stretch that out to eight months, or you might even still be able to make a little bit of progress over a month or two of, of severely diminished training volume. Um, but then, you know, on, on the other extreme end, complete immobilization, very, very bad news. You lose a lot of muscle, a lot of strength very quickly. The other big thing to consider is age. So you can get away with time out of the gym a little bit easier if you're younger uh, rather than older. Yeah, I, I just have one thing to add here. Uh, a very common thing that you'll see is someone will be like, hey, I'm going to be out of the gym for like six weeks because of some circumstance, uh, but I'm going to increase my protein intake. And so I'm going to be fine. I'm going to retain all my muscle because <laughs> of that. So be I, cool. I think it's important to recognize like every step that you mentioned, every proactive step involved movement, activity, training. Yes. yes. Uh, if you remove that activity, that training stimulus and think that, you know, protein is going to get you out of a bind here, the, the evidence is terrible for that. It just doesn't seem to work. Uh, so like th there have been studies where they do some pretty, um, they, they try to induce atrophy in a number of different ways, often with immobilization. Uh, increasing dietary protein just doesn't seem to do anything at all. Uh, there are a couple studies indicating that maybe possibly leucine might do a little bit of something, kind of. But generally speaking, it's just I, I wouldn't even bother with, with a, a protein or a leucine intervention. And a lot of times, um, oddly enough, like, it kind of backfires a little bit because people will be so adamant about getting an extra protein during this period of low activity. They actually probably eat more calories than they need. And so then when they come back, they've still, if it's a really extended period of time and they've really reduced their activity level, they come back and they have every bit of loss of strength and muscularity that they would have without the protein intervention. I mean, it did not save them any preservation of strength or muscle, but they also gained a little bit more fat than they would have liked to. So yeah. if anything, it kind of, in terms of their fitness goals, sometimes it kind of digs that hole paradoxically a little bit deeper because it's like, well, I still got to regain all that strength and muscle. And there's a little more fat to lose that I didn't really plan for. Yeah. So nutrition stuff, I honestly wouldn't even bother aside from just good, healthy nutrition practices. For sure. So uh, really the two big takeaways is if, if you're going on any sort of like normal length vacation over the summer, you don't need to worry about it. Like you, you're, you're not going to lose enough muscle or strength to, to lose sleep over. And when you, when you get back to the gym, you're, you're going to get it all back in a week or two. Like it's totally fine. Don't worry about it. And if you are still worried about it, take five minutes a day. Do one set of push-ups, one set of pull-ups, one reasonably hard set of split squats, and then go about your day. That that's that's going to maintain your gains for, you know, it, it, certainly for a two-week vacation, probably for like six months out of the gym. Um, yeah, that that's like 
That is the ultimate security blanket. Just doing a little bit of something. It doesn't have to be much. Just doing a little bit uh, consistently will help you maintain the muscle and strength you have very effectively for a very long period of time. Yeah, for sure. All right, I think I'm going to answer one Q&A question and then we'll wrap up. All right. This episode is going to be a little longer than normal, but, uh, you know, it's free content. So if you prefer shorter episodes, good news. This is a bonus double episode and you can <laughs> you can listen to it in two different sittings. Um, all right. So I had a question from Alex and uh, the question was, is there any actual benefit to sauna use aside from the fact that it just feels nice? Uh, first of all, I wouldn't discount that end there. It's nice to do things that feel nice. Uh, so like I personally use, so when I started like getting serious about trying to train around or, or kind of rehab my hip and low back issues, I joined a new gym that just had more equipment that would be more suitable for me. And, uh, it happened to be like one of those nice gyms that has like a sauna and a steam room and all that. Mm -hmm. Dude, I use the sauna all the time explicitly because it feels nice and I like it. Uh, so I don't want to discount that application. But the question is more about uh, physiological benefits. So first of all, sauna, generally speaking, there are going to be different types. There are dry saunas and wet saunas. Uh, generally speaking, uh, a wet sauna is going to be uh, over 70 degrees Celsius or 160 Fahrenheit, usually with over 50% humidity. Um, with a, a dry sauna, it's often going to be 80 to 90 degrees Celsius, which is like 176 to 194 Fahrenheit, usually much lower humidity, like 10 to 20%. And there are a number of different ways that people do sauna bathing. And that's kind of the verb is sauna bathing. So mm -hmm. Finish style sauna, often you're doing one to three sessions of heat exposure in the five to 20 minute range. And then, uh, you know, it's Finland. So between that, you might go take a dip in a frigid body of water, go, uh, you know, play in the snow a little bit, really cool down and then get in for the next session. Or just listen to the most brutal black metal on this planet. <laughs> exactly. Absolutely. Uh, and dude, finish uh, like sauna culture i'm all about it dude uh i i was finland was one of my first uh international trips i ever took uh it's probably like my first real international trip i made it like two miles into canada one time i, I don't know if that really counts being from ohio mm -hmm. but um yeah i went to finland and uh dude saunas are everywhere and, and it is so cool I, I wish that america would adopt that um like even like at universities and like the uh, the faculty lounge, there will be a sauna in the lounge there next to the coffee machine. It's just really cool. Mm -hmm. uh, but anyway, finish style sauna, uh, like I said, one to three sessions, about five to 20 minutes. And between those sessions, you kind of get out and cool off a little bit. Uh, there are other uh, versions of sauna. There's some different infrared sauna techniques. Um, there's a, a type of infrared sauna use called wan therapy in Japan. I'm certainly not pronouncing that correctly, but generally speaking, you know, with, with sauna, you're talking about five to maybe 30 minutes inside the sauna, breaking that up into multiple sessions. Um, now, physiologically, sauna is really fascinating uh, because there have been a number of review papers, and I'm going to link some of those review papers in the show notes 
that do identify some modest physiological benefits. And what's interesting about sauna is the mechanisms almost, if you look at kind of the physiological response to sauna exposure and uh, the kind of uh, metabolic and endocrine uh, kind of snapshot of what's going on, it almost looks like a bit of an exercise mimetic, like something that kind of mimics the signature of what we would see with someone doing exercise. So, you know, we'll see like increased AMPK and GLUT4 reductions in certain inflammatory markers. Uh, acutely, when you're in there, you're going to have an increase in heart rate and sweat rate and cardiac output, notably without an increase in stroke volume. So that's a major difference compared to exercise. Um, but But yeah, we see like with chronic use, uh, we see these reductions in inflammation to some extent, some changes in certain metabolic parameters, some changes in certain cardiovascular parameters, uh, reductions in reactive oxygen species. So, uh, and even changes in the way that the, the endothelial cells function uh, in the vascular system. So there are a lot of mechanisms where you would look at sauna and say, this uh, kind of planned, safe, safely uh, planned exposure to heat stress seems to be influencing certain things that are kind of similar to what low amounts of exercise might do. Uh, so physiologically, the response to sauna exposure, I think, is really fascinating. And like I said, I'm going to link some review papers in there. Uh, one of the best review papers, uh, well, this see, this is a difficult thing for me to share in the show notes. There is a review paper by Dr. Rhonda Patrick that goes over the mechanisms of sauna. And she was on, she's been on some podcasts lately talking about sauna. And I very much disagree with some of the conclusions, some of the practical applications. I think that the potential benefits are very overstated in terms of magnitude. But I am sharing the link uh, because I think it gives the most comprehensive uh, uh, overview of the potential mechanisms. And actually, the figures are very good. Uh, and I'm a sucker for good tables and figures in a paper. So my recommendation is to look at that paper and read it at, from the following context. If you were really adamant about convincing me that sauna was super, super, super important and effective, how would you justify it? That's kind of how you should read through that paper just to get an idea of what mechanisms are at play. But when it comes to the actual magnitude of effect, the, the kind of tangible, clinically relevant health-related outcomes, uh, I think the picture is a little bit more, uh, it's a little bit more dicey. It's a little bit more messy. It, it's not quite as conclusive and robust. And what we see in the sauna literature is actually a decent number of total papers, but very few randomized controlled trials, uh, which is unfortunate because it is a therapy that lends itself to randomized controlled trials. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I very much do hope that they will do more of these in the future, uh, while also looking at different observational techniques to, to try to assess longer-term outcomes that you can't really look at in an RCT. Um, but a lot of the really, really, really positive findings with like huge effect sizes about sauna. A lot of them are tied to one particular study and one particular research group that publishes from these findings. And uh, 
I, you know, th- these researchers do good work. I'm not like disparaging the work and uh, saying like, oh, this is terrible research. But it's really critical to recognize this particular study is this long-term observational study, but sauna use was actually determined based on a one-time self-report questionnaire that happened like in the 80s. So they basically, oh, wow, yeah. they basically brought them in and said like, how much do you currently use sauna on this day in 1987? Yeah. And so then they're doing these like 40 year analyses of like who's dying and who's not and what are they dying of? And the question is, first of all, to what extent do your current sauna related practices for one week in the 80s necessarily reflect your lifelong commitment to sauna exposure? Yeah. And then secondarily, to what extent was your sauna use that week in the 80s, to what extent is that playing a causative role in your health outcomes versus, hey, I uh, have an active social life. I do sauna with my friends because it's a thing we do. Uh, I've got great social connections, an awesome network of friends and family. I am healthy enough to put myself in a very, very hot room for 30 minutes at a time very frequently. Uh, I'm at a spot in my life where I can free up the time to do that and engage in behaviors that I think are good for my physical and mental health. There are so many potential instances of reverse causation where healthier people are doing sauna versus sauna creating healthier people. Yeah. Well, and I mean, we would also just need to know something about Finnish culture in the 1980s. Like how, right. how was sauna viewed? Was it something that like uh, the health authority said, ooh, maybe don't do this. It's bad for you. Or is it something that they were saying like, ooh, this is good. You should do it. It's It's healthy for you. Because if it's the latter, then it could just be that like people who are generally striving to be healthy were the people who were in the sauna a lot in the 1980s and you know maybe they kept getting in the sauna maybe they didn't or you know maybe they adopted any other number of generally healthy behaviors in pursuit of being healthy i I don't know how saunas were viewed in finland in the 1980s yeah so so there's a lot to i basically just caution against taking those particular findings and saying oh look at this very clear causative link between sauna use and this particular outcome now those studies do make sauna use look very, very good. The magnitude of effect in some of those studies is surprisingly large. But when you dig deeper into some of those results, they they were really making the rounds a few weeks ago because they got covered on a big podcast and people were like, oh yeah, if you do this, it's going to cut your rate of this outcome by like 30% and this outcome by like 50%. And if you dig deeper into those findings, what you find is that those really large effect sizes that were reported appeared to be unique to particular subgroups of people who, uh, you know, had indicators of, you know, relatively poor cardiometabolic health. So like it was the people who were uh, based on their metrics at baseline, they should have been relatively high risk groups for those outcomes. It looks for the, like for the people with, the worst state of fitness level and cardiometabolic health, sauna seemed to have the largest effects. For people who were doing sauna and already had kind of a cardiometabolic and fitness level profile that would be uh, correlated with good health and longevity, 
the effect sizes were were really not impressive for those folks. So sauna right now is getting kind of popularized as this thing where if you're a healthy person with a high level of cardiorespiratory fitness and a great cardiometabolic health profile, if you do sauna, you're going to get this huge health benefit. That's not really compatible with the totality of the evidence. Those benefits seem to be mostly uh, within individuals of lower uh, cardiometabolic fitness or cardiometabolic health status at baseline. So my overall assessment of sauna based on the literature is the mechanisms are fascinating and I like physiology. Um, I think it is probably, it probably has modest positive health benefits related to cardiometabolic health and cardiovascular health. I certainly don't view it as a replacement for exercise or physical activity. I think it's almost like, hey, it's better than nothing, but not as good as, you know, more traditional forms of exercise to benefit cardiometabolic outcomes and cardiovascular outcomes. Uh, I think if you're someone with a low cardiorespiratory fitness level who's at high cardiometabolic health risk at baseline, you might have to some extent an additive effect of doing a little bit more exercise and a little bit of sauna in the mix. Um, but as you start to get to a higher fitness level, I think it's more likely that those health-related benefits of sauna become increasingly modest and potentially at some point even a little bit redundant in the context of someone who is at a really high fitness level. Uh, so in in summary, I think what you would expect with sauna is neutral neutral to modestly positive health outcomes um but but it's certainly not a replacement i mean one of the things that i mentioned is a critical distinction is you know you do get some of these uh indicators that's like oh sauna does this exercise also does that but the fact that you have an increase in cardiac output without an increase in stroke volume the increase in stroke volume is a really major driver of a lot of the positive cardiovascular adaptations that we make to aerobic type exercise. So yeah, it's not like a full exercise replacement, but like I said, probably better than nothing. And one of the things I find most fascinating about it, uh, as I do it myself, uh, I was reading a great review paper about um, exercise and appetite. And they were suggesting in that review paper that the increase in body heat that we experience during exercise might play a causative role in suppressing appetite after exercise acutely. Uh, and it was, it was hypothetical. It was speculative. Uh, it was not something that I would take to the bank. But I have noticed that when I do sauna, uh, it does seem to transiently blunt my appetite to some extent which I think is really fascinating. It's something I've noticed with sauna, but I don't particularly notice with exercise, to be honest. Uh, but anyway, you know, there's, there's a lot of interesting stuff related to sauna, and I'm hoping that we'll get more randomized controlled trials to kind of dig into some of these mechanisms. But I will say an important thing to keep in mind is that saunas are hot and heat stress is a serious physio physiological stressor. So if you have any kind of, uh, you know, noteworthy or relevant uh, medical condition, you'll want to make sure that you consult with a, prof a medical professional to make sure that it is safe for you to engage in extended periods of time in this level of heat stress because it can be quite serious. 
You know, I'm curious the the body heat and appetite thing. I I would want to read that paper. What occurs to me cuz like I also don't want to eat after after I get really hot. But it's just cuz I'm sweaty and I don't want to eat when I'm sweaty cuz I feel like I just feel slimy and yeah. I I feel like I'm just going to get sweat and muck all over everything that I'm eating. And so I'll, like uh... I I don't know. I, I wonder. I wonder if you can manip like completely shut down sweat, but uh, still make people hot. If you would see, if you would see the same impact. Well, good luck running that study. I'm sure the IRB would love that. We're gonna oh, yeah. introduce heat stress and then remove the, the human mechanism to actually dissipate heat. Yeah, just just figure out how quickly the subjects in that study can learn how to pant. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah I'll put that that review in the show notes that was talking more about. Um, you know, exercise and heat and appetite. That wasn't the main focus of the paper. It was one subsection. Um, but yeah, I'll put that in the show notes and I'll send it to you after the show and you can take a look at it. Maybe we'll revisit on the show later. Like I said, that that to me is something I was like, oh, that's an interesting thing. I do the sauna because I like it, but I have noticed that I do have some, some notable appetite suppression for a couple hours afterward. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I'm not in a calorie deficit. Um, I'm just at maintenance level. So, uh, it's very possible that once you get into a deficit, it's just like, whatever, you're still hungry. (laughs) Like, uh, it it is interesting. Like if there's one thing you learn from bodybuilding, it's that a severe calorie deficit combined with low body fat can cut through damn near anything. Like, yeah. Well, so after like, yeah, after a hard workout in the heat, after I go play basketball, whatever, I do want to consume calories, like just some sort of like calorific beverage. Yeah. But I don't want to put food in my mouth. Yeah. Uh, So yeah, I I feel like, I feel like I am experiencing, experiencing physiological hunger, but I just feel gross if I eat while I'm very sweaty. Yeah. Well, yeah, we'll we'll, uh, maybe revisit that, but at at the bare minimum, I'll put that link in the show notes and people can uh, engage in the controversy and form their own opinion. Sounds Um, good. But yeah, so sauna, uh, like I said, neutral to modestly positive health benefits. I think it's uh, a lovely cultural practice. I think it's very fun and cool. There seems to be a social element in certain countries that that is, you know, really cool. Like I kind of wish we had it here. Uh, and I love doing sauna because I think it feels great. And like I said, yeah, maybe you get some minor health benefits from it. Maybe not. But as long as there's no contraindication, as long as you don't have a relevant medical issue that would prevent you from using sauna, you know, I, I certainly see no reason to uh, restrict yourself from doing something that can be very enjoyable, very relaxing. And this actually was funny. So we've talked about gym culture on the show before. Yeah. Um, so my girlfriend and I go to the same gym. And she was stunned to learn about what a men's locker room is like oh, at a God. gym. Yeah. Uh, and we go to the same gym. So it's like a perfectly like it's like a randomized controlled trial. where the, There are two locker rooms in the same exact building. Uh, what is the difference in culture within these rooms? And because I'll come back and tell her and be like, Dude, I almost died in the sauna because I was chatting with this guy and he just wouldn't stop talking. Like I, I was like having a heat stroke and like, dude, I have to leave. But because I'm from the Midwest, I cannot be rude. Mm-hmm. And so I can't just be like, hey, dude, I'm leaving because I'm like going to die here. But I, yeah, like I've, I've had to like be like, dude, I'm, I'm really sorry, but I must leave. But like I've been in the sauna and there have been these like lively debates among like four or five people about like, 
interest rates and the cost of a barrel of oil. And like, we're out here just like chatting it up. And she's like, I, I could hear a pin drop in the women's locker room at any moment. <laughs> I've never spoken to a human being there. And I'm like, dude, I can't get a word in in there. Yeah. Like it yeah. is. Yeah. Apparently there is some dynamic going on. But uh, yeah, the, the getting in the sauna is is just the chattiest place that I've that I frequent on a regular basis. Oh, for sure. Um, all right. So I think, uh, oh, we got to play the show out to play us out. I've got uh, a little music recommendation before the thunder uh, shuts us down here. So. Oops. So I moved to North Carolina uh, several years ago. That's like, close. Yeah, that is a very close storm. Moved to North Carolina uh, several years ago and I moved from Ohio and the thing about Ohio is that it's like there's no unique culture to it, really, at least the part that I lived in. And so when I moved to North Carolina, I was fascinated by the different aspects of North Carolina culture. Like in the Outer Banks, there's like a, a version of dance that is like specific to North Carolina. Uh, I have no I, I have never heard of such a thing in Ohio there's a specific dialect, the Ocracoke brogue. And yeah. if you've never heard that, please go to YouTube and search Ocracoke brogue and listen to this dialect. It is so fascinating. It's apparently a bunch of Scottish uh, people came into the Outer Banks, kind of settled on this island that was really like, you just stayed on the island. Like they just kind of stayed put and created their own little culture there in Ocracoke. Uh, but it's an accent that I, I couldn't even begin to describe. And they've even developed their own kind of vocabulary to go with it. Uh, so I was really fascinated by this kind of like coastal culture that's been cultivating in North Carolina for, for a long time, but also the Appalachian culture out West in the mountains. Uh, and one of the things that I loved about moving to North Carolina was that it's not that rare when you're out in the summer to hear a bluegrass band kind of playing out, uh, you know, in like at a brewery or, or any kind of outdoor event. And so bluegrass music, uh, I've really fallen in love with it over the last decade or so. Uh, it's a really great musical tradition with fantastic instrumentation and really great storytelling in the lyrics. Um, I, the, the, the storytelling element is is a really unique part of bluegrass to me. I think when well done, the stories are, 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 are just really great. It, it's really well written songs. Uh, and in terms of the instrumentation, uh, I'm just a sucker for two things, a great banjo and good vocal harmonies. And you're going to get plenty of both with bluegrass. So uh, in terms of bluegrass recommendations, maybe not necessarily what I would train to on a regular basis, but uh, I, I'd love me some Old Crow Medicine Show and Willie Watson, who was in Old Crow Medicine Show and then kind of split off to do his own thing. And obviously, I'm not like a bluegrass insider. This is like the most mainstream bluegrass band you could possibly mention. Mm -hmm. uh, but they're very good. Uh, I also really, really love Dave Rawlings and Gillian Welch. They often play together. Uh, and then Dave Rawlings uh, has kind of a band project that, that Gillian uh, participates in often. And uh, yeah, Dave Rawlings and Gillian Welch, uh, very, very good singers, tremendous harmony between them. Uh, and Dave Rawlings is, he is excellent at the guitar, but in a very sneaky way. It's like you have to listen closely and you'll be like, oh my God, that was, 
that was really wild. And then if you watch him play, you get this even greater uh, appreciation for how much skill is required to play the songs that he plays on the guitar. So uh, for a major change of uh, change of pace from our progressive metal conversation, uh, Dave Rawlings, Gillian Welch, Old Crow Medicine Show, and Willie Watson, really great opportunities to check out some bluegrass, and I hope you like it. Yeah, if if you're if you're one of the people who says like you know what I I conceptually like the idea of country music, but you know modern country music on the radio I don't like it. It all sounds the same. Like it's it's mass produced corporate garbage. But like the old stuff, that's where it's at. Uh, when that musical tradition split, kind of what we now think of as country went one way. And what we now think of as bluegrass and folk went another way. Yeah. So yeah, if if you like uh, if you like putting on old country records and you're like, man, why don't they make music like this anymore? Eh, they make something like it, and uh, and you can probably find it in the genres of of either folk or or bluegrass. Yeah, definitely. All right, so that does it for this episode of the Stronger by Science podcast. As always, thank you for listening, and we will be back next week with another thank you for listening to the stronger by science podcast if you enjoyed the podcast be sure to sign up for our free newsletter to get concise breakdowns of relevant research as well as 28 free training programs for all skill levels and all schedules we hate spam just as much as you do so we'll only email you when we have something really interesting to share with you you can sign up for the free newsletter at strongerbyscience.com newsletter, or just go to the Stronger by Science homepage and click the free programs button at the top. If you want to join in on the Stronger by Science podcast conversation, be sure to check out our Facebook group and our subreddit. The links for both are provided in the description of today's episode. Finally, please remember that we are not medical doctors or registered dietitians. So before you make any changes to your exercise or nutrition habits, be sure to check with a qualified healthcare professional. Once again, thank you for listening, and we will be back soon with another episode of the Stronger by Science podcast.